In September of 1982, there was a front page story on the Chicago Tribune that was connected to two twin sisters, Karen and Kristen, who were students at Moody Bible Institute. It appears that as they were walking home to their dorms one night, they found on Rush Street a wallet that had $350 worth of cash in it, and they turned it into the police. And that made front page news in Chicago because that doesn't happen very often. Apparently, the story was that a man was try test driving a motorcycle that he wanted to buy. His wallet fell out on Rush, Rush Street. He didn't know it. When he went to pay for the motorcycle, there was, there was no money to be found. Then he said to his friend, if only angels would find it and bring it to me. That's the only way I'm going to get it. And two angels found it. But the interesting thing about that story is this. It made the front page news. The Bible conferences at Moody don't make the front page news. Uh, the sermons of the local pastors, as good as they may be, don't make the front page news of the trib. But I'll tell you what does. A story of believers living like believers. It is amazing to me that the essence of a story, the, the dramatic form of a story is found so often throughout the scriptures. Someone has said maybe 70% of the Bible is story. Story allows people to be drawn into the action and then surprises them with the truth. It is to let an idea come over people uh, without stating it plainly. And then suddenly that main idea captures their imagination and their mind and hits them with a powerful punch. Saying something directly to people is not as potent as saying something that secretly comes upon them and they discover the meaning by themselves. And stories work because they pull ourselves, they pull us in. In this powerful, magnetic way, they pull us in and we're captured. And we find ourselves identifying with the fears of the character, the failures, the misfortunes, but also hoping, hoping with those characters that we too will survive and maybe even recover and thrive. I want you to know that the Bible is not a theological textbook, as though some pastors may make it out to be. The Bible is not a book of virtue alone. It is first and foremost an incredible story about God. His person, his creation, his love for humanity, our rebellion against him, and his plan to redeem us and to restore us and make all things right and new. It does teach theology, and it is filled with virtue, but it teaches these things in story. And that's why I love the thought in the book of Joshua that we are going through some historical events and stories that literally took place to the people of God, but in them are these wonderful truths that perhaps come upon us as we experience the events in the Scriptures. Open your Bibles to the book of Joshua 
in chapter 9, Joshua chapter 9. And we read in the very first verse, now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, and that would be the previous chapters, the victories of Israel over Jericho and Ai in particular, those kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon. And then it mentions the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All these nations that were mentioned before, except the Girgashites, and I have no idea where they're, why they're not present. But they came together, verse 2, to make war, to wage war against Joshua. So if we take a quick look at the map to get oriented, uh, the red dot of Gilgal is the headquarters of Israel that was made once they crossed the Jordan. They crossed over the Jordan, now on the west side of the Jordan, made camp at Gilgal, and from this place they plan to go into the land and conquer it. Now you notice the names that I just mentioned there on the map. Uh, you've got the uh, the Hittites, kind of in the north and the south region. Uh, you have the Amorites, who are along the west side of the Dead Sea, which, by the way, includes the city of Jericho. They were Amorites. And then you have the city of Ai that was defeated up in the hill country. Uh, you go from there as we follow the scriptures, and this, this was... Uh, Joshua chapter 6 is Jericho, Joshua 7 is the sin that took place, and they were defeated at Ai, and then Joshua 8, they defeat Ai, and then we ended in Joshua chapter 8, actually going a bit north and celebrating on those dual mountains in the valley of Shechem, where the word of God once again was uh, renewed their commitment to the word was renewed and they were able to worship and it was a, just a tremendous time uh, you also see in this area the other nations that are around there and there's a there's also a little dot here that can be given right by the Jebusites for the city of Jericho uh, the red line was actually showing the fact that I passed over so quickly that the uh, people of God, after they had that celebration in Joshua chapter 8, they came back to Gilgal. So this is where they are now, after these victories, back in the plains of the Jordan Rift Valley, at headquarters, plotting their next move. And I want you to know that all of these nations are on the list to be destroyed. And they know it too. And so their response, verse 2, is to wage war, to form a confederacy. They're going to go out and attack Israel. They're going to fight them head on, which to me sounds like a very foolish thing after all that has transpired in the cities of Jericho and Ai. However, we read in verse 3 that there was a city called Gibeon. And you'll see on the map the blue dot for Gibeon west uh, of Gilgal. The Gibeonites, who were also Hivites. The people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, and verse 4 says they resorted to a ruse. 
I love that translation in the English. They resorted to a ruse. Now, these guys were not afraid to fight and join the others in battle, except they knew it was fruitless. They doubted the wisdom of open warfare with Israel. And so they decided to somehow get a, a league of peace, a treaty of peace with them, and they resorted to intentional deception. And so they went, oh, approximately 25 miles from Gibeon down to the headquarters of Gilgal. And notice how they did it, verse 4. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old ragged clothes falling apart. And the bread of the food, their food supply, well, it was dry and moldy. And then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Please make a treaty with us. You see, they gave every appearance of having tri traveled a long way, not merely 23 miles. The importance of this is understood when we remember the command that was given to Joshua in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Actually, through Moses, from Moses to Joshua. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess and to drive out all the nations before you. And he mentions the same nations that we just read in Joshua 9. These nations that are larger and stronger than you, when the Lord God delivers them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. So the Gibeonites said our only hope is to deceive and to mislead. So they gave the appearance that they came from a long country knowing that Israel could make treaties with countries outside of the land of Canaan. And we pick up the story in verse 6. We have come from a very distant country, they say. Make a treaty with us. The men of Israel, however, said to these people, the Hivites, they didn't know they were Hivites at this time. Perhaps you live near us. Show us. Uh, and, and, and we can't have a treaty with us. You know, tell us something more about yourself. And their response is, we are your servants. I hope you've learned by this time in life that things are not always as they appear. I mean, we know that lesson, but we don't know that lesson. I was watching a commercial. It's been a couple years ago. But I had a scratch in my car, and sure enough, here's a commercial about this wonderful, wonderful stuff you put on your car, and it takes away the scratch. And I watched this thing, and I examined the evidence, and man, the, the car looked newer than it was before. And I bought that stuff, and it was totally useless. <laughs> Things are not always as they appear. And so the Bible tells us that uh, these individuals actually were able to fool Joshua and the people. Oh, they were hesitant, 
They asked the questions. They were fearful of going against the commands of God. But they said in verse 8, we're your servants. Joshua said, where do you come from? And now they answer, well, we have come from a very distant country, and we've heard the fame of the Lord your God, verse 9. We've heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon and Og. Uh, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. By the way, they did not mention what had happened to the cities of Jericho and Ai because that would have blown their cover. They're from a far nation. They don't know yet about those things, so they pretend. And yet to get to the camp of Gilgal, they had to walk right across the burned ruins of both cities. They knew very well what had happened. And they embellished the truth from a distant country to a very distant country. I want you to know that uh, it was not true that they were from a distant country, but it was true that they heard about the fame of God. And that touched them deeply. So in verse 11 down through verse 13, they're basically just telling the story again. Hey, look at our sandals. Look at our clothes. Taste our bread. We've come on a very long journey. And then notice verse 14. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. And boom, the story delivers a powerful punch. Joshua, verse 15, made a treaty with them to let them live. And the leaders ratified the treaty with an oath. I want you to know what happened. They, they tested the food. They looked at their clothes. The evidence was overwhelming, even scientific. They were convinced and so they said, yes, we will let you live. And, and to ratify a treaty with an oath, which is the last part of verse 15, means that there was an amazing assembly of all the leaders. And I don't know if there was music, but there were speeches declaring that by the God of heaven who lives, we promise to let you live. And in the Old Testament, many times treaties were established with some type of token. Remember the story of Ruth where they exchanged sandals done in the presence of the leaders so that you've got the evidence in hand of the covenant made. All of that was done, an oath and a promise. And so I simply want to say to you today that the first lesson that I see so clearly is this unhappy story of failure with regard to the people of God. By the way, verse 14 literally reads, the word sample is accepted. They accepted the men based on their food. The provisions were accepted, but the counsel of the Lord was not asked. Oh, I don't need to spend long applying this point to your life and mine. You and I are often convinced that most of the decisions in life don't require seeking God's face. The evidence is so overwhelming, the course of action so abundantly clear. Common sense tells us you don't need to pray. It's obvious. 
But it's interesting to know that the problem with common sense is that it keeps us from God. And God said, my ways are not your ways. So that our common sense often takes us in the wrong direction. You see, you and I have the ability to think logically to the wrong conclusion. And we're convinced that it is the right, right course of action. But had they prayed, you say, what could they have done? Inquired of the Lord. How would they do that? Numbers 21, uh, Numbers chapter 27 tells us that they had a priest in their midst named Eliezer who would obtain decisions for Joshua using the Urim and the Thurim, perhaps casting lots, but they would inquire of the Lord and the Lord would tell them what to do and they bypassed that very important thing. Their story was so reasonable and the references to God so reverent. They accepted the evidence of sight without seeking the mind of God in prayer, said Oswald J. Sanders. You and I need to remember that our enemy, the devil, is more subtle in his quiet lies than his open attacks. He's more vicious and effective as an angel of light than he is as a roaring lion. The church flourished under the persecu persecutions of Nero, but succumbed to the flatteries of Constantine because the subtle often causes us to sin. And you and I make alliances without prayer, and those alliances come back to haunt us, haunt us. decisions without seeking the face of God. God's wisdom is available. It's available in his word. It's available through prayer. It's available through the good and godly counsel of others. God's wisdom is available, but often ignored. And here's the part of this amazing story. It's an unhappy story of Christian failure, we could say of not seeking the face of God. Oh, but that's not it. Then the story takes a pretty amazing turn. Look at verse 16. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites hear that they're their neighbors living near them. To Joshua's dismay and embarrassment, he discovers that the citizens from this far country are his neighbors next door. And it was all a lie. Now, what happens when you are taken in on a ruse? <laughs> you get upset. Verse 17, so the Israelites set out on the third day and came to their cities. And here the cities uh, are mentioned of the Hivites, Gibeon being the chief royal city of the four mentioned. Verse 18, but they did not attack them. They didn't attack them. That's what the scripture says. Because the leaders had sworn an oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, to let them live. Now the whole assembly thought this was a really stupid idea. They grumbled. But the leader said, we have given our oath by the Lord and we cannot touch them now. Verse 20. So this is what we will do. We will let them live as we promised so that we, 
don't experience wrath for breaking an oath. Wow. And they continued to let them live. But they told them that they have to be woodcutters and water carriers for their entire life. And Joshua kept his promise. By the way, four times the Gibeonites say, we are your servants. That's how they started it out. We are your servants. And they end the chapter the same way. We are your servants. We are your servants. They never got off page. But now I notice there's something else in this story. There is this sense of this surprising display of fortitude by the people of God willing to keep their word. I don't know about you, but if I had been in that group, I might have been grumbling with the crowd saying, listen, a covenant made by deceit does not need to be honored. Doesn't that sound wise? It sounds reasonable, right? If someone deceives me, I'm not bound by what you have done. And there may be cases where that is true, but not when the name of the Lord has been used and an oath has been given and ratified in public. You see, the leaders felt bound by their promise. They didn't want to add sin to sin. Oh, there's another lesson. <laughs> you can't get out of sin by sinning. I made a dumb move. I'm in big trouble. I think I'll sin to get out of it. Well, that's common sense, but really stupid. We may be caught in the framework of our own foolishness and ignorance, but we may have to pay the consequences and seek God to live in the midst of that difficult situation. To break the oath would be to dishonor the name that the oath was made in. In Semitic usage, a name was the verbalization of the entire character of the person. And when they took an oath in the name of Yahweh, that meant something. And you just don't go back on the oath. The name is all that God is. We Westerners have such little value for the phrase, I give you my word. Do you believe that? When someone says that to you, especially when they raise the eyebrows and smile just a little, I give you my word. <laughs> and we don't believe it. How serious a person may appear to be. And yet, in this Semitic culture, it means everything. Remember in Genesis chapter 27, when Jacob deceived his father Isaac and got Esau's blessing? Remember that? Remember how he came in and he, he put on the garments so he was like Harry Esau and he made the porridge that the, his father loved and he had the game and, and Isaac gives Esau's blessing to Jacob and it was by deceit. And then Esau comes in and says, wait a minute, what's happening? Father, give me the blessing. And what did, ja what did Isaac say? I can't, it's already been given. I've given my word. It's interesting in Psalm 15 that David says, Who may dwell in your holy sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And then he says, Those 
whose heart is blameless and who do what is right, who speak the truth from their heart and have no slander on their lips, who do their neighbor no wrong and cast no slur on their fellow man, who despise vile people but honor those who fear the Lord. And then David says this, those who keep their promise even when it hurts. Psalm 15. Who can dwell in God's presence? The people who keep their word, even if you suffer for it. It breaks my heart in the midst of our Christian culture that we who say we follow the God of truth are so quick to turn back on our own promises. And I suppose all of us are guilty at some point or another, but the mark of a believer is one who keeps his word. Why? Because that's what God does. Do you think keeping your word is important? Have you ever taken out a car loan for a brand new car, decided to buy it maybe because your neighbor has one? Or maybe you just stopped into the showroom and you had a, you know, your car is in the shop getting fixed and someone talks to you about a brilliant plan where you can handle this and you sign up and you come home. Honey, I bought a new car. And it's four or five days later you have what we call in the West buyer's remorse. In fact, they've even added something in a contract where you can go back after a couple days and rescind on your promise. But wait a week or two, a month or two, and come back to the bank and say, listen, I really blew it. That was a dumb idea. I think I was deceived into buying this car. Here's the keys. You can have the car back. I'm not paying it anymore. I'm going back on my word. And they'll say, no, you're not. You're paying for this. You <laughs> will pay. And when we give our word in the presence of God and don't follow through, there's wrath to be paid, to be received, consequences. That's what the scripture says. So we go into marriage in the presence of God and make vows and quickly turn on them. We make promises to partners, sometimes with no intention of ever keeping them. And because it's not best for us, we're willing to go back on our word and call ourselves followers of the God of truth. In th that instance, we are not. So I say I am surprised in this story by the fortitude of the people of God who will not give up their word. That is pretty amazing. Now, it's going to be tested, by the way. We can't jump into the 10th chapter right now, but when the League of Those Nations found out that the Gibeonites had gone over to the enemy's side, they lost Jericho, they lost Ai, and now one of the royal cities has sided with the Israelites. Well, they decide to attack Gibeon. And Gibeah calls out, and they say to the Israelites, come quickly. The nations are coming to wipe us out. Remember the oath. And they waited with bated breath to see what Israel would do. And Israel came and fought for them. They honored the oath. They kept their word. If you jump down to verse 22, you've got Joshua saying to the Gibeonites, Why, why did you deceive us, saying you came from a long way? You are now under a curse. 
And for the rest of your life, you're going to be woodcutters and water carriers having to do with the temple, the altar of God. And you know what the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites said? That's fine with us because I'd rather be a doorman in the house of the Lord than be dead meat on the side of the road. That's exactly what they've been saying this all along. We're your servants. Do what you want to with us. Woodcutters, water carriers, that's better than being dead. We'll take it. And, and in answer to the question, why did you do it? It's pretty plain, verse 24. Your servants were clearly told how Yahweh, your God, had commanded Moses to give you the whole land and wipe out all its inhabitants before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that's why we did this. <laughs> it's no mystery. We want to live. But here's the thing that shocks me the most about this story. Kind of that secret meaning that comes out of nowhere and in the midst of the story punches you right in the gut. And it's simply this. Not only is it an unhappy story of our failure not to pray, not only is it somewhat a surprising story when Christians keep their word, this is a wonderful story of God's amazing grace. I mean, Great grace. You say, how so, Pastor? Well, let me, let me share with you a comparison. And I've got a lot of points. We're going to go through them quickly. It's a comparison between the Gibeonites in chapter 9 and Rahab in chapter 2. So, they were both part of enemy kingdoms, right? Uh, one of the Amorites and the other of the Hivites. They were both under the sentence of death. They were on the list to be destroyed. They both heard about the Lord. You can read about what Rahab said in chapter 2. Everyone in Jericho knows what you did 40 years ago to the Egyptians and how you crossed the sea, and now you've come here. The fear of you is upon everyone. And the Gibeonites say the same thing. This is why we did it. We heard what God had done. But not only did they hear the message about the Lord, but they believed that message to the point where they were desperate to be rescued and they were willing to do almost anything, even lie. Rahab lied to hide the spies. The Gibeonites lied to get a peace treaty with Israel. You say, is God approving lying? Absolutely not. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And I do not fault these people. I would have done the same thing to save my neck. They all embraced an oath. They acted upon their belief. They had a true view of who God was, that he wasn't limited in any way. They used his high and holy name, Yahweh. What he said he will do, he will do. And we're acting upon that belief. They left their kingdoms to join the people of God, which is extremely risky. And they not only became part of the people of God, but they stayed with the people of God for the rest of their lives. These were people marked out for destruction. 
Rahab, you know the story, she marries the son of a prince in Judah and becomes part of the Messianic line, one of the ancestors to Jesus Christ, an Amorite. And the story of the Gibeonites is no less amazing. When the Hivites continued to fight Israel throughout the years, the Gibeonites, there's no record that they ever rejoined their former nation. They remained close to the altar of God, cutting wood, carrying water, water used for cleansing, the wood used for the fire and the sacrifice. Later on, when the land is divided, the city of Gibeon becomes a Levitical city. The Levites live there. And David later is going to put the tabernacle there so that it's filled with priests and the presence of God. At least one of David's fighting men hundreds of years later is a Gibeonite. And when Zerubbabel returns with the people of God from the captivity of Babylon, guess who's listed in the genealogies? The good old Gibeonites. Because when they became a people of God, the part of the people of God, they stuck with them for hundreds of years. As far as we know, Rahab and the Gibeonites are the only people saved from the land of Canaan. But they were saved because they trusted. Now here's the thing. Story pulls us in when we see ourselves in the story. You say, you've been talking about old nations hundreds of years ago. No, no, you're in the story. You and I are in the story. We are just like Rahab and the Gibeonites. You say, how so? We're part of an enemy kingdom, born in the kingdom of darkness. We're sentenced to death. The wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. We've heard about the Lord, and I hope we we were desperate enough to do something about it. We embraced His promise, His oath, and we acted upon our belief by following God, leaving the kingdom of darkness and being transferred to the kingdom of light. And we proved that that decision was genuine by following continuing to follow the Lord. I love Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that Almighty God has made a promise to us. He made a promise to Abraham, and since there was no one greater than himself, he swore and made an oath by himself to Abraham. Surely I will bless you and bless your many descendants. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath confirms what is said and puts the argument to rest. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear, he confirmed it with an oath. It's impossible for God to lie. And now all who flee for refuge, to embrace the hope of God set before them, are greatly encouraged because God can never go back on his word. Francis Schaeffer said, men may draw back from the idea of judgment, but if God is going to be worth anything, he has to be holy. Therefore, the very justice of God should reassure us he will never break his oath. He will never 
break his promise to us, never. And what's his promise? Whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 15. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the oath and promise of God. It was Jesus who said on oath, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be rescued. Like Rahab and the Gibeonites. A blunder turned into a blessing. Sin is conquered by God's grace. The warriors become worshipers. So you're in the story. And I, don't, I hope you're not still in the enemy's kingdom. I hope you've heard about the Lord. I hope you know that the wages of sin is death. But know that God has given you a promise. If you'll embrace it and believe it, you will be saved. And this wonderful story tells us three things. God's wisdom, seek it. Your promises, keep it, keep them. God's mercy, receive it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we often read through a story like this. And forget that you are giving us messages, powerful messages, intended to transform us if we will believe. I pray that you will help us to see today that we are just as needy as anyone in the city of Gibeah that day. And our only hope is to come to you. We don't have to come to you with deceit or ruse. We have to come with repentance. We have to come with a change of heart and faith to trust you and a devotion in that faith to follow you all the days of our life. We're not saved by following, but because we are saved, we follow. Speak to our hearts today, and especially those who are still on the outside. May they be encouraged to believe in Jesus' name. Amen.